This is your bird story, a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities. This season is funded by the Voice for Nature Foundation. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Siemens. I don't even know how to describe how I feel about <laughs> being in this Zoom space with Rodney Stotts, who I have followed for a very long time through Instagram. And so I just want to welcome you and ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you for having me. I'm just Rodney Stotts. That's me. But you're a master falconer. And you're licensed as a raptor specialist. So could you walk us through how you became these two things? Well, technically, when people say a raptor specialist, that's just something that they say. We're not considered raptor specialists. Falconers just develop a relationship with that bird. They ask the bird to allow them to help them make it really through that first winter. Most birds won't make it through their first winter. About 90% of the hawks and stuff won't make it through their first winter. So when a falconer traps a juvenile bird, he doesn't teach that bird to hunt. He's actually asking that bird or she's asking that bird to allow them to help them hunt together so that they can survive. Around March of the next year, you catch that bird, September, October, the year Prior, the next year, around March, April, you would take the bands off that bird, take it on a hunt, let it make its kill. You go get in your car and you leave. And that's a wild bird again. And that's what you want to do is just help it make it from a juvenile to an adulthood. So basically, that's what falconers do. We're conservationists, whether they know it or not. Is there a particular falcon that you have a relationship that you can talk to us through that relationship? Of all the, I suppose, falcons you've worked with. Well, I love all of my animals exactly the same. So I don't have one that there's something more than the other. Each animal has its own different personality. So if you wanted something for something specific, then you would pick whichever animal it is that you need it for. As far as the birds, I've had Agnes, my Harris hawk, the longest. She's actually named after Agnes Nixon, the lady that used to write My Life to Live, All My Children. She bought that bird for me years ago. And so I named her after her. And so that particular bird has 50 names, basically. She's named after every female that's passed on that meant something to me. So whenever I'm missing one of them, I can take that bird and fly that bird. And it's just like we're together. Hmm. How did you meet? the Agnes for whom Agnes is named? Working with Earth Conservation Corps, Robert Nixon is Agnes's son. So I met her through Bob working with Earth Conservation Corps. The very first time I met her was so comical. One of the co-workers and I had gotten into an argument. This was on a Friday and I promised to kill him over that weekend. Well, Bob snatched me up and we went to Pennsylvania where his mom lived for that weekend. And as soon as I walked in the door, she said, hello, 
I hope you left all your artillery outside in the car. And we just bust out laughing. And she was like a mom to me ever since for 26 years before she passed. Okay. She sounds like she had a really great sense of humor. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. So you just mentioned the Earth Conservation Corps and that organization and the work with the river are a big part of your story. Can you talk a little bit about your work on the river? When people say that, like, that's a big part of the story, I don't know what meaning that they have on that, because Mm -hmm. as far as the Anacostia was concerned, when I started working with the program, it was just to get a paycheck. When you sell drugs, you don't get a W-2, you don't have a paycheck. So it wasn't about being an environmentalist or anything. I didn't like being indoors. I love to be outside. And so when I started working there and started doing some of the work on the rivers and creeks by me being an animal junkie, that's what really connected with me of knowing the animals that we were actually cleaning up their homes and the things of that nature so that they can strive and keep going. The reason that their homes were destroyed basically was because of us, meaning people. So it was up to us to go back and try to rectify some of the things that we've done. And so that whole thing, that's how that really came about because of the animals that relied on the Anacostia River. Hmm. How long did you work in that program with that organization? Off and on for 31 years. Off and on. I would leave, come back, leave, come back. Would you say that then your love for animals, I suppose, at what point did you notice for yourself that the work was becoming more than just a paycheck, that you were basically cleaning up the home, the river for these animals that you love? Was there a certain moment when you realized, "Uh uh-huh? Yes. We were in Lower Beaver Dam Creek pulled maybe 150 tires out that day uh, that was buried in the muck and the sand and the mud and the water. And so when we got them all out and you turned around and you saw as the water started to flow, the murkiness would clear up. And then you started seeing little minnows and little crayfish and things like that. We were shocked because we thought everything was dead there. And so to start seeing that light and as you come back the next day, you start seeing great blue herrings flying through now. You start seeing beaver families with the, uh, the mother with the little babies swimming up through. The, and so you really got a better understanding that what you were doing was bigger than what you thought it was in the beginning. It was to me, it was just, okay, I'm here. You know, I need to check a pay stub. I'm still doing what I do, all this, that, and the other thing. However, the animal side of it just took over. And where did this love of or love of love for animals come from? I guess my mom. My mom, she's a country girl. She grew up on a farm. So we used to stay at my great grandmother's house on her farm over the weekend and, and summer times and things like that. So I've always been around some sort of an animal. And anytime some tragedy happened in my life, which was a lot, an animal seemed to always be what made me feel better as opposed to a person because really there's nothing we can say to each other that really makes you feel any better. And when people are trying to find the right words to say, that's what ends up messing things up. 
that animal just sits there and listens to you, lets you cry on it, licks you in the face or kisses you afterwards and, you know, doesn't have an opinion. It's not telling you that you're wrong, not telling you, just listening. And it's an entirely different thing with that animal as it is with the person. Hmm. Did you and your mom have explicit conversations about your love for animals? Was it something that you talked to each other about? Well, my mom knew that I always loved animals. She never stopped me from having anything except for snakes in the house because she was mm. definitely afraid of snakes. Mm. So she always knew since I was a kid, I loved animals. Since I was an adult, I've always had some animal, dog, snake, something. Like now I have goats, chickens, rabbits, dogs, horses, birds, hawks, owls. I mean, you name it. I'm an animal junkie. And so before she passed a few years back, I got to... On one of her birthdays, her 64th birthday, I took one of the birds, oh, Agnes, actually, and flew Agnes. She got to put her arm out, and Agnes flew out the tree and landed on her arm. And she was just super excited. She was always supportive. She was the greatest supporter I could have ever wanted in my life, period. Did your mom have a favorite animal? Elephants. Elephants. She loved elephants. Yes, she did. Okay. She had the little figurines of elephants, something about you turn the butt towards the back door to to push all of the bad vibes out, some superstitious things that they believe in. So well, she loved elephants. You just gave basically a menagerie, this long list of animals that are part of your life now. How did you bring all of these creatures into your life? Well, right now I run what's called Dippy's Dream. My mom died about eight years ago. Before she passed, she used to always say she wanted a home for her kids to always be able to call home. If anything happened, they had somewhere to come to. Well, she had passed before I was actually able to get this home. So I have seven acres and I opened a human sanctuary that has animals. It's not an animal sanctuary. It's a human sanctuary. It's where you can come camp out, bring your tent, bring your sleeping bag. I mean, really camp out, not glamping, camping, where you really get out in your tent. You got your little Coleman stove and your little coolers beside you, which I, that's what I mean. And you get away from the city. You get away from, wake up every morning, you hear ambulance, police cars, fire trucks. You go into a store, you got to walk through 75 people smoking, drinking, part. And I'm not knocking anyone for anything that they do. However, this is what you have to go through. Why? So either you're going to implode or explode. If you don't have a place to get some of that stuff off. So when you come here, and it's all donation-based, I don't tell people, oh, you got to pay $300 a weekend. or Because if you can't afford something, doesn't mean you don't deserve it. You can get up every morning, feed the homeless, teach kids how to read, teach adults how to read, all of this stuff. But you don't have $500 to learn how to ride a horse. Did that mean you didn't deserve it? No, it just means you, you couldn't afford it. If you got down here, you had 37 cents in your pocket. Guess what you learned how to do? You learned how to ride a horse. So it's not about money. It's about having a place where you can come and just escape, get away from it all, turn your phone off, turn all that stuff off and get back to nature. Literally take your shoes off and stand in the grass. I bet you'll start crying. We disconnect from, this is Mother Earth, right? Mm -hmm. So if this is your mom, what is the closest contact that you're going to have? The skin to skin, right? 
Mm-hmm. Take your shoes off. Take your socks. Stand there and feel your mother wrap her arms around you and understand what you're doing. Mm, that sounds so beautiful. I have my shoes off right now, but they're touching carpet. <laughs> 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 okay, so two questions. One is, where is Dippy's Dreams located? Like, in the context of where it is in relationship to a, the next closest city. It's in Charlotte courthouse virginia i guess the closest thing that people would recognize is farmville virginia or lynchburg i'm maybe 30 minutes from farmville i'm an hour from lynchburg and most people know where charlotte virginia is that's two hours from me okay so your mom had this dream to have this house why did you feel that you needed to create this space Why were you the one to fulfill the dream? And in particular, in this way, and I suppose in this location, I mean, it seems you would probably have to drive to it. Yes. Well, one of the biggest reasons that the animals and why I'm here, I had horses in Laurel. They came and said that we were breaking our lease and I had 60 days to get rid of my horses or they were going to violate the lease. Well, within that time, I was blessed to find a home and everything. And on the 60th day, I had just went through everything with the house, waiting to go to closing. We had a meeting in Maryland and they said, Rodney, we didn't know that that was you and your horses. You don't have to leave. But by that time, I'd already bought a house. So it was too late for that. So I have seven acres here. Every tragedy, I've lost my mom. I've lost brothers. One of my sons was actually murdered a year ago, July 5th. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for my animals, I would either be locked up in a straitjacket somewhere, locked up in prison for the rest of my life, or dead. Mm. There's no other option. With my animals, no matter what, I can, man, move. move. They're not going anywhere. They're going to come right back. They're going to make sure that you're okay. You have a place out here now where you can come You're upset with the world. You just, you feel like you want to be destructive. Okay, well, go chop down some trees. Mm -hmm. Come on, let's go build a cabin. We can chop down all the trees that we want to chop down. Let's build a cabin. By the time you finish doing whatever constructive while you were being deconstructive, then you're going to look back and rip, wait a minute. Instead of me doing this and flying off the handle, let me just create something. Every time I get into this mode where I feel like I'm just getting ready to lose it all, Let me just create something. When folks come, and I maybe I'll ask this first, do you have folks coming back more than once or twice? Do you have sort of repeat folks who come because they see the sanctuary you've created as just, I don't know, like an essential part of their well-being? Well, I've had one particular lady to come back three times. And each time she comes, she'll call me. She'll say, Rodney, will you be around this weekend? I say, yes, ma'am. She'll say, well, I want to come out this weekend. Sure, no problem. And so she actually pitches her tent inside of where my horses are. I have like three acres fenced off where the horses can run around. So she'll go in and pitch her tent in the middle, basically where the horses are, and stay all weekend long and just have a bowl. Mm-hmm. And when she leaves, she'll pack up everything. She makes sure she cleans up everything. And she gets in her car next Sunday, whatever time Sunday that she wants to leave, and she pulls over. 
So for folks who come and, you know, they're coming for the first time, what are some of the reactions that you have seen over the years? How do people kind of present themselves when they drive up or are driven up? Well, when they first come up, they're a little alarmed because I have six dogs. So I have barbarian mastiffs, which are basically 100-pound dogs. And three of them are puppies. But when you look at them, you wouldn't think that they were puppies. So the first thing they drive up and think, uh-oh, wait a minute now. But they are the most friendliest things you ever wanted to see. I don't believe in vicious animals. Hmm. So I have rabbits. I started breeding rabbits. A few of them got loose. So I have rabbits just running around. But they will walk up to you if you have lettuce or kale or carrot. They actually will walk up to you and let you feed them. Hmm. So. Everything is socialized. I just got three goats yesterday. So all yesterday, I sat in the pen with them and just sat there until they felt comfortable enough to walk over to me. And then I get to pet on them. And over the next two weeks, I'll be able to walk them like I walk my dogs. I'm an animal junkie. I love the animals. And I know what they can do for you if you allow them. You can sit and just watch fish and just watch how your body changes. People think you have to go to war to suffer from PTSD. Mm. You don't. If you break down what it is, it's a post-traumatic stress. So do you think the mother that walked up on the scene and saw her son laying there with half his head gone, she's not stressed for the rest of her life? Mm. And if you have nowhere that you can go and do, like down here, everything's a memorial. So you had a loved one that passed, come plant a tree. It's not going anywhere. That tree will be here as long as I own this property. That simple. Come plant a garden, help start a garden, and we name it after that loved one. So now everyone that comes and picks from that garden has to replant something because you're giving back as you take away. So those are the things that we do down here. All of the animals are named after loved ones. So I have a adopt an animal program. You can name it anything you want after your mom, your brother, your cousin, and say. $3 a month, you may donate $3 a month to help take care of your animal. So when you come down, whatever that particular animal is that you adopted, you get to sit with them, take pictures and hold it and all that type of stuff. Whether it's a horse, you want to ride him, come on, I'll put a saddle on his back. We can get in the round pen. I'll walk you around on him. If you know how to ride, that's even better because we can saddle him up and let's go because I ride. Okay. How did you learn how to ride? Actually, we went. For the very first time, I was 22 years old, 21, 22, and everybody was bragging, oh, I know how to ride, I know how to ride. And none of us had ever been riding before, and everyone <laughs> was talking nonsense. So the guy gave us all horses that were supposed to be for people who knew how to ride a little bit. By the time you got back off that horse, you knew how to ride then. You were so sore. That's the thing that people can't get over is that soreness the next day for the next week, actually. Well, but the more you ride, the less it bothers you and you'll have the time of your life. You can get out on that horse and just go for a walk and you'll look up and then six hours later, you had no idea that time flew by you that fast. Mm. Yeah, I've been close to a horse to feed one, but never gotten in the saddle. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they'd have to start me out on like this sort of the oldest, calmest horse, I think. 
Okay, so folks come up and the first thing they notice are your mastiffs. What next? Rabbits everywhere. Right beside the rabbits, there's hawks. My two hawks are right beside the rabbits. On the other side is the owl, which is in here right now. He's in the cage right behind me. Then you'll go down. There's chickens. Then there's a mother and father rabbit pen that those two stay together. So every two months, you basically have a litter of rabbits. Right beside that is the babies that they have each time because I breed them for food and for the birds. And then there's the big male on the last end who's the father of most all of the babies out there. Behind that, you have the three horses and three goats. So you get to come out and the rest is just all open space. With fenced all three and a half acres, like I said, for the horses, the other three acres are open. We have horseshoes, badminton, all the little games and stuff, water slide, all that type of little stuff. Or you can bring whatever it is that you want to bring with you. You know, if there's something particular that you like to do, bring it. Chess boards, checkers, all that little knickknack board games. I have a projector, so we have certain movies that you can download onto the computer. We'll sit outside and have movie night. We'll set up the little projection screen and just sit out and watch movies, pop popcorn. And where you can actually set out two, three o'clock in the morning. You're not worried about if someone's coming around the corner to rob you or shoot you or any of that type of stuff. Anything that comes around the corner is going to be a goat, a chicken, mm. a rabbit, you know. Something like that. So you talk about movie night and a documentary was made about you and your work. Can you describe for folks how that came into being and what one could expect to see in the documentary? It actually came to be the young lady, Annie Kemper, was a film student at New York University, I believe, at the time. And it was actually, the documentary wasn't even to be a documentary. It was just a school project that she was doing. It was supposed to be a two-minute to five-minute little clip, pretty much. Spike Lee was her teacher at the time. Mm -hmm. And he gave her and another student a grant to help them expand their documentary, their little short clip into a somewhat documentary. And then it just went on and on and on from there. We actually filmed for almost seven years and she eventually just had to stop and make the documentary because I kept doing other things like the documentary doesn't have any of this in it, you know, mm. stuff like that. So we had to eventually, or it never stopped. That's how that actually came to be about. I never set out for a documentary. I never set out to write a book. I never set out to do anything Publicity-wise, what I've gotten from this that means more to me than any interview, being on any show, being on, writing a book, the Make-A-Wish Foundation called me twice to do a program for a little boy and a little girl. That, to me, meant more than anything else. Because when I watch Make-A-Wish, I would always see stars, multimillionaires, people who own this, that, and the other thing can fly you out to here and I can't even afford to get you an Uber over here. But mm. They called me. So to me, that was the greatest honor that I got to do, knowing the situation with the little boy and the little girl. I was the one they called. So that to me meant more than any of the rest of that stuff. That's a really beautiful story. 
and what an honor for you and for those young people to be a part of each other's lives in that way. There's something that's on your website and I want to read it. And you've touched on some of this a little bit. Make the powerful connection between endangered species of all kinds that include the bald eagle in D.C. to local youth who must navigate survival in a stressed community. And you've talked about the role that being with animals, being around animals can play in human health and well-being and healing. But you called out the bald eagle especially as an endangered species. And I wonder what is behind making that link between the bald eagle and young folks in the D.C. area. Well, I mean, technically, the bald eagle was supposed to be the symbol of freedom, the big macho, whatever adjective you want to put there to really describe it. However, they were basically extinct in D.C., you're in the nation's capital, and there are no eagles. There are no bald eagles. Why? Because the Anacostia River was so polluted that the last nesting pair of eagles left in the late 40s, early 50s, because of the DDTs and poisons, the eggs wouldn't hatch. They would land on the nest. They would crack the eggs. So the last nesting pair left. When you look at young people and the birds, 85 to 90 percent of these birds don't make it through their first winter. Mm. 85 to 90 percent of young people don't make it to 18 without a criminal record. Chumped up charges, whatever. There's something set up against you that you're going to always seem like you're going to fail. So the same way with the birds, if you catch a juvenile bird and you help that bird and ask that bird to allow you to help it to survive, because that's what you're actually doing. And now you release that bird, and now that bird has a greater chance of survival and reproducing. Same way with that young person. One of the things that got me into falconry was because I was working with the nonprofit, and we were always working with adjudicated youth. And so when I asked them, why can't we catch people before they go to jail when everyone's talking about fighting the recidivism rate? Mm. If you stop them from going to jail to begin with, there is no recidivism rate. Re means to do over. So if there's never been the fact of you going, you can't read anything. They say, well, the only way you can do that is to become a falconer. I say, okay, well, I'll become a falconer. And you must have thought I was on Comedy Central because everybody started laughing and all. I didn't understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I guess the term black falconer 14, 15 years ago wasn't something that was talked about. And so they started telling me all this stuff that you got to do and as if that was going to discourage me. So I said, okay, well, I'll be, I'll become a falconer. And I'm not going to do it to prove anything to y'all. I'm going to do it because I said I want to do it. And you told me that in order for me to be able to help anybody, doesn't matter what color you are, what religion you are, what sexual orientation you are. And if you love these animals, come on. And you're telling me I have to be a falconer to do that. Okay, well, then that's what I'll do. Mm. So it wasn't, oh, I love the animals so much. I want to be a falcon. I wanted to. They told me in order to help the people that I wanted to be able to reach out and help get birds that wasn't injured and keep those birds from becoming injured the same way you wanted to do with the young people. They said, be a falconer. 
the rest was history. So that's what I did. How successful has this approach been? I guess you would have to ask the people who I've come in contact with. It's not something I can answer. I don't know what success is for them. Mm. Everyone has their own level of everything. So that's why I try not to put mine on someone else to say you're not this or you're not that. Because you could have came from someone else not even paying attention that you started saying, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, please, thank you, I appreciate Mm. it. So to me, that's success. Someone else may say, well, he didn't make a million dollars, so he didn't make it. He didn't make it to you. And he made it to him or her or whoever that person is. That's what my thing is. So I try not to put that on someone because you can be calling someone a failure Mm. and you're in the wrong. Nothing beats a failure except a try. So if you're at least trying, how could you possibly fail? There's no such thing. Are there young people who have worked with you that you're still in contact with? One in particular name is Hollis. He's my nephew, basically. 20 years ago, basically, my nephew was in the program. Him and another guy, Tim, saw the way that my nephew and I interacted all the time. So they came to me one day and said, will you be my uncle? I said, listen, y'all understand there's a job and then there's family. So if you're asking me to put you in my family, understand what my family is and how I go about my family. They both agree. To this day, Hollis and I text each other, call each other. He's got kids. Every, his kids know who I am. I'm their godfather, basically. Him, Me and this young man have stayed in touch over the last 20 plus years and don't plan on going anywhere. He's one of the ones, the most, that we stay in touch. Yes. Hollis is a, is a lucky person. No, I am. You both have gained luck through knowing each other. Yes, ma'am. Do you have a favorite raptor? I don't have a favorite animal at all, not bird, fish. I love all of them. From the moment I get my animal, it's the family. I bring my rabbits in here. I have four dogs outside, two dogs inside. I can bring my rabbits inside, set them on the floor. The dogs won't bother the rabbits. My bird is right here. Hoops is right behind me. I have two dogs in here. They're laying in the room. They can come out here right now. They won't pay that bird any attention. That bird is not going to pay them any attention. Everything knows that there's no reason to be aggressive, no fighting, no any of that. I don't have any of that type of stuff. I go outside, pick up a little rabbit, bring it in the house, set it on the floor. They come over, sniff the little rabbit. Rabbit runs around and they just sit there and look at them. They'll lay down. Rabbit can run underneath of them. What are they going to do? Everything in here, out here, understands it's all love. There's nothing, no beating on animals, no mistreatment of anything. You're not going to come out here. On my front door, it says animal house, which means anything on two legs, I don't care about you. If you harm any of my animals, you're not going to make it off this property. I don't care if it's a goldfish. You're not going to make it off this property. This is the animal house. They are allowing me to be here. Because Mm -hmm. technically, if you think about it, we invaded every animal's home on the planet. Mm -hmm. We would tear down the woods that all these animals live in. 
to build our super mansion when a shack would have did just the same. Yeah. So I'm just sort of letting that sit there a little bit because that speaks to so much of the many crises, all the various pressures that the planet is under that are human produced. My final question is what would you encourage folks to do as they move around in their daily lives? You know, we don't all have access to your seven acres on a daily basis, but what in our daily lives can we listen out for or look out for to even get a small dose of what folks could get if they come to you? Each other. Notice each other, first and foremost. Stop walking past people, walking over people like they're not there. Whether homeless, black, white, gay, straight, Democrat, stop. All of that stuff we can pick to find to divide us. And there's one thing that unites every one of us. Because if you peel this skin off of every one of us, we all going to bleed the same color. We all got the same heart, lungs, kidneys. Everybody stop looking at this outer. It's like the animals. One of the things we learn from, I've learned from the animals, them animals don't care nothing about you. They don't care if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're straight, if you smoke crack, if you use drugs. All they care about is, do you love me? Are you going to protect me? Will you take care of me? That's it. So why are we so hung up on all this other stuff that don't mean a thing in our lives for real? We're so worried about what this person has, what that one has. I explained to my nephew the other day, I said, listen, if I gave you $20 and I gave your brother $40, would you be mad? Yeah, huh? you gave him 40 I said, well, why would you be mad? If you didn't have anything, and I gave you $20. You're not grateful for the fact that now you have $20. You're mad because your brother got more than you do. That's what the problem is. Let's be grateful for what we have. That's why I tell people it's donation-based. I work. I go do shows. I come back. I take that money and then put it into this where's those so that people who don't have can come and be able to enjoy. I know what it is to have nothing I know what it is to eat wish sandwiches, looking at a piece of bread, wishing you had something to go on. I know what that feels like. And I know what it is to have a full plate one day. So you telling me that you now have a full plate or even a half a plate and you saw this person with a wish sandwich, you didn't scrape a little bit off your plate for them? Why? I don't like being around people like that. If those are the type of people that want to come here, please don't. Mm. That's not the type of people I want around me, my animals. It's all about love and healing here. Doing for each other. Helping each other. Speaking. It's good morning to a stranger. You will be surprised. Before we go, I want to give you one thing that someone shared with me. Mm-hmm. This guy told me, he said, man, about six months ago, I was ready to go. I just couldn't take it no more. I just wanted to be gone. I was in so much pain. Everything just hitting me left, right, and center. He said, do you know what I needed, man? He said, I just needed a hug. I don't care who it came from. Black, white, gay, straight, doesn't matter. Somebody wrap your arms around me and tell me I'm important. That's what we need to do. That's what the animals taught me. Because no animal 
that I've ever been around don't take advantage of that day that they eat. Hmm. I think I'll take from that all the words that you said. There's no way to say it better. You know, being grateful, showing gratitude, showing love and respect for others, and that healing power of love, which you've experienced through your work with your sanctuary and for the folks who've been lucky to be a part of that. So I'm grateful to you for taking time out of your day to talk with me about your work and your life. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Your Bird Story. Like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you back here next month.